primary care knowledge-based polycystic ovarian syndrome. welcome back to primary care knowledge boost we hope everyone's keeping well and looking after themselves in today's episode we speak to dr nico amiri about polycystic ovarian syndrome and we recorded this episode back in february 2020 before covid yes so just bear in mind that this um, is not adapted for the covid environment in practice at the moment and whenever you're listening to the episode So in the episode, we use a hypothetical case to walk us through the history, examination, differentials and investigations for a patient with irregular periods. Yes, and as you'll hear, that leads us on to discussing PCOS, how it's diagnosed, what it is and how to treat it long term. Yes, and just to clarify two points about the part of the conversation later on in our conversation with Dr. Nico O'Meary, where we talk about inducing withdrawal bleeds for patients who've not had Uh, at least three to four periods a year. The first point is that we're talking here about patients who are not otherwise on any other hormonal contraception, which would normally protect the endometrium from the increased risk of endometrial hyperplasia. The second point being that when we talk about what we can use to induce a withdrawal bleed, we talk about norethisterone. And just bear in mind that some women can't use norethisterone um, because of VTE risk or other, other reasons. And the NICE guidelines recommend as an alternative using a cyclical progesterone such as medroxyprogesterone acetate 10 milligrams for 14 days as an option as well. Yes, but do remember to check the contraindications for that as well before prescribing it. Um, But we've put a link to the NICE guidelines in the episode description and we'll be back at the end of the episode to discuss our learning points. Enjoy. Um, So today we have Dr. Nico Amiri here. Do you want to introduce yourself for everybody? Yeah, okay. So I'm Mashid. I am currently one of the consultant obstetrician gynecologists at Thameside General Hospital. Um, My areas of interest really lie in subfertility as well as postmenopausal bleeding. So um, we thought we'd do things slightly differently today and take a case and ask questions through the case in terms of this. So we won't I think I think actually the title of the podcast will probably ruin the um, mystique. The mystique, but we have a hypothetical case for you. Okay, it's a 22-year-old lady called Anisha. She comes to see you. She's got irregular periods. Um, She's getting longer gaps between her periods, and they're getting more unpredictable. So, just starting with that, what questions would we need to be asking for our initial consultation? Okay, so just like with any patient coming with. uh, problems with periods or changing periods, you would take a full gynecology history. So asking them when their last period was, how often they have periods prior to the change, any intermenstrual bleeding, postcoital bleeding, dyspareunia, um, not forgetting to ask about things like that because they're yeah, obviously your red that. flags. Yeah, you need absolutely. To um, if there's anything that she's noticed with regard to the change in the bleeding pattern, any things that's going on with her lifestyle, any recent smear history, but obviously for her because she's 22 she wouldn't have that yeah and then obviously general health as well is there any other conditions that she suffers with does she take any regular medication um any weight change so i would want to know a height and weight and any change in central adiposity really as well and obviously if you are thinking of things that with changing periods and lengthening of cycles um would you would ask about questions that might lead you to the diagnosis or suggestive of polycystic ovarian syndrome so you could ask about any hirsutism that she might have noticed if she's 22 if she had any worsening of acne when she previously didn't have such bad acne mm, okay, um, yeah. and asking as well about any history of diabetes within the family so taking a general good history really okay and how relevant is um family history with polycystic ovaries 
is it more about the diabetes type in the family? So there is evidence that suggests that you are, it, there is some hereditary component to polycystic ovaries and in particular it's commented on in, in the PCOS website. So it is important to ask if there was any family history of that. But I think more so there's the risk factors for the diabetes that we're looking at. Yeah, okay, lovely. And in terms of, I guess, with any gynae history, you'd probably be asking it anyway, but um, sexual history and things, yes, is absolutely. it relevant? Yeah. yeah, so you should ask about um, if they're sexually active, um, any recent STI infections that they might have had and what they use for contraception. And obviously within that, the drug history, so any medication that she takes to use as form of contraception yeah lovely so just going through just to let you know about what we find from from anisha okay. <laughs> so she's had no intermenstrual bleeding no postcoital bleeding no discharge no dyspareunia she's had a regular partner for over a year and she's been using condoms reasonably reliably she's had her sti screening which is negative and she's got no significant past medical history family history or drug history her BMI, when we've measured it, is 28. So yeah, what other examination would you do um, in that first consultation with Anisha? What else would you want to be looking for? So um, if you are thinking of polycystic ovaries, um, you would look for signs of acne in particular. You could look in terms of hirsutism. So I think there's this... Obviously, there is an ethnic variation to hirsutism. And then there's this difference between the type of hair. So there's vellus hair, which is quite soft and thin. And sometimes that can be mistakenly presumed to be um, hirsutism, especially if your hair is naturally dark anyway. Okay. But the difference between the type of hirsutism that you get with polycystic ovaries compared to the normal type of hair that you'd have is it's terminal hairs that you see in hirsutism, which are generally thicker, longer. They're sometimes irregular in texture and shape as well. So look for signs of hirsutism in places you may expect them for polycystic ovaries um, you would examine for acne and in particular you should measure um, central central weight as well so abdominal girth and look mm. for height and weight to work out the BMI okay mm. lovely you should do an abdo exam obviously to rule out anything else that may be yeah um, is it necessary to do a, a speculum or an internal I guess if you, there's no history of um intermenstrual bleeding postcoital bleeding it may not be necessary but it sounds like if she's had swabs and things taken already i presume then at that point she would have done had an examination anyway yeah um so yes i guess with anisha we noticed that she's got a little bit of acne it's nothing severe um no real hirsutism at the minute um we've told you her bmi is 28 and her abdominal examination is normal okay so at this point what do you think the differentials are for her so i think if that you have to look at the reasons why she might have oligoamenorrhea or secondary amenorrhea. So polycystic ovarian syndrome is the most common endocrine problem that happens with women of reproductive age. Okay. So you, you, you would be thinking about that. You could also think of premature ovarian failure, which is unlikely, but obviously can present obviously very early. Yeah. It'd be important to rule out if they do have significant um, hirsutism, anything that is untoward and concerning. So androgen secreting tumours, oh, um, oh, yeah. late onset of congenital adrenal hyperplasia and hypothyroidism, hyperprolactinemia, any endocrine thing that would lead to similar features. And I guess Cushing's as well, really. Okay. It's quite a lot of things going yeah. through your mind there. You, you, you should hopefully from the history be able to, to work out which one. So I guess... Um, you might think, well, how would you work work it out? Well, um, very sudden onset of hirsutism with uh, viral signs of virilization, so deepening of voice, you would think the testosterone level must be significantly higher yeah. and the, the investigations would show that as well. But they would lead you more towards the androgen secreting tumour and uh, late onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Okay, so that would be a bit more obvious yes, to us, yeah. hopefully. Okay, good. So with those differentials in mind and knowing all the history and examination about Anisha, what investigations do you think we should be doing off that first appointment? 
So um, you would be, because her main presenting complaint was a change in her period, so you would look at uh, FSH and LH levels, um, you could look at estradiol level and do thyroid function tests, you would look at testosterone and, and free androgen index and all the things that you would do with polycystic ovaries. Um, but it's also important to rule out other things, so your thyroid function test, your prolactin, and just looking at any other concerns. So if she's been having heavy bleeding in between, would you do a full blood count, you know, just thinking yeah. of the features that she presents with in particular. Um, you would also th think about an ultrasound scan because as we know the, the criteria for diagnosing polycystic ovaries one of them is polycystic ovaries to be seen on ultrasound scan as part of the Rotterdam criteria so if you had any concerns obviously with change in menstrual cycle you would organise an ultrasound scan Yeah, and ideally I'm assuming transvaginal Yes, yeah. yeah. If she's sexually active and she consents for that. Yeah, grand. Um, and is there any um, particular timing that we need to do the blood tests? Yeah, so um, ideally, normally, on the you would do your FSHLH, you should dial on day, day two of the period, if possible. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is if she's having very lengthened cycles and if she's not having regular periods, it's difficult to do like a day 21 progesterone. Yeah. But unless you're investigating them because they're trying to um, conceive and then day 21 progesterone is therefore more important yeah. within the workup for the fertility. Fine, but if it's just polycystic ovaries that we're thinking and we're not in the fertility range yet, it's less important for us to try and time yes. that as much. And then, so do you want to talk us through how you do specifically diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome? So um, we currently use the Rotterdam criteria. So the, the you have to have two out of the three cardinal features for that. The first one being oligo or anovulation, mm -hmm. um, which would present itself with the irregular menstrual bleeding. Um, the second one being c clinical or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism, so having a raised testosterone. Mm -hmm. um, and the third one is ultrasound scan features of having polycystic ovaries okay um, i think it's a really important thing to say at this point is that women sometimes come to us thinking they've got cysts on their ovaries and polycystic ovarian syndrome you don't have cysts on your ovaries you have more follicles actually twice as many follicles as as women with with normal ovaries yep. so i think the misconception of women thinking they've got cysts on their ovaries and mm. they presume that these cysts might cause pain so it's important to explain that to them yes and very interesting point actually mm. yeah and supposing that anisha was on a, on a form of hormonal contraception she wasn't but just supposing that what effect does that have on the blood test results do we need to take that into account at all yeah you would um any form of contraception really um that you know would affect the fsh and lh levels so you might not get a a representative result really and it's bearing that in mind and if you are on the ones that are anti-androgens so your dianet for example might reduce the mm. testosterone so you may not have as high a testosterone level seen there yeah i guess one of the things could do is whether you stop them and do the test without the contraception but obviously having good counseling about the, the risk, risk of that yeah. or just bearing that in mind when you see the results and mm. obviously the signs of hyperandrogenism is only one of the features so if you've got yeah. the other two then you may not need that result that's yeah. true I think this part in particular is probably the most challenging I def definitely when we get blood results back working out what they mean um, yeah. particularly with the ratio with FSH and LH which looks like now it's less of a yeah. a, a factor it's not part of the diagnosis like I think it used to be 
This again may well be yeah. get, getting so, caught. So, this is just me was, talking. No, no, I've got a really good thing on it actually. <laughs> okay. so Have good. you? Yeah. Okay. So with PCOS, uh, you can get normal FSH levels. LH can either be normal or increased. The estrogen level is normal or slightly increased, and your testosterone level can be normal or slightly increased, which <laughs> is why it is. It's easy to see why people struggle um, sometimes with those investigations. I think the things that you're trying to rule out is from what we said, other things that could be causing the menstrual irregularities. And if you think of poly, um, premature ovarian failure, you would get a high FSH, high LH with a decreased estradiol. And if you have hypothalamic or um, pituitary problems, so things like being underweight, being overweight, you'd have a decreased FSH, a decreased LH and a decreased estradiol. So anything that's higher up affecting the hypothalamic pituitary system, you just it just reduces everything. So it is difficult and I can see why it's difficult. Because they can all be normal. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it is one of the three features for diagnosis. Yeah. Exactly. So it is nice to have the backup of the other two um, that you can look for. And in terms of the results from testosterone that would make you think, yes, this is fitting the Rotterdam criteria, is it just any elevated testosterone with everything else being? Yes, yeah. So elevation in testosterone and, and usually if, if, it's, if testosterone is more than five or it's, you know, twice as high, then you do start to worry that it's not PCOS and whether you need to investigate other causes that we talked about briefly that may raise the testosterone level significantly. Okay, so too high needs to be a warning yes, flag absolutely. as well. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's a good point what if Anisha was 14 or 15 years old how would that change your approach to her presentation yeah I think it, it depends on when she started having periods um, you can get irregularity within your cycle especially within the, the first year but less than three years you know um, up in that first to three years of starting periods so that's something to bear yeah. in mind yeah. uh, the other thing is that with the new international guidance that we have for polycystic ovarian syndrome is that you shouldn't be using ultrasound scan to diagnose polycystic ovaries in girls until they've had eight menstrual years really eight years from menarche okay um if she's not had periods by the age of 14, 15, somewhere in the back of your mind, you may think that she may be having primary amenorrhea, but the, the diagnosis of that is not until 16. So it's just looking at what how she's presented when she started having periods. But not neglecting, it may not mean that she doesn't have polycystic ovaries because she may have the acne and the hirsutism and the weight issues that go with that um, and trying to look at how to improve those symptoms that she's got and maybe not being able to give a diagnosis as such just yeah. yet. Okay, that's a nice way to look at it. So we can still manage her symptoms. We just yeah. don't necessarily have to label it until she's a little bit older. And, and the thing with polycystic ovaries is there's no treatment. It, yeah. it is it is a, a long-term disease um, that obviously patients do suffer either at mild symptoms, moderate, severe, and it's a spectrum. But mm. it's about providing individualised care for that specific person and what symptoms they've got mm -hmm. to make yeah. it better for them. Yeah, exactly. Very true. Like all medicine really should be. <laughs> but <Absolutely>. yeah, <laughs> individualised. Um, and just thinking along the lines, we talked about age there. Is there any difference in diagnosis with ethnicity at all? No, the, the difference in um, ethnicity really comes from how you look at hirsutism. So we know that um, some patients from different backgrounds may show signs of what we think is hirsutism because they have darker hair or they have a slight, we have an ethnic variation in the amount of hair in on our body. So in particular, Mediterranean patients, Hispanic patients or patients from the Middle East may have a slightly higher amount of body hair. But the variation comes in and what we perceive is is more so it's just looking speaking to the patient and seeing how how much it's affecting their quality of life mm -hmm. 
So going back to Anisha, we've got her results back. Um, she's got an elevated testosterone level, but not too elevated. <laughs> so mildly elevated. Um, the rest of the bloods that we've done are all normal and her ultrasound is normal. Given that her history was about this irregular periods and her slightly high BMI with that elevated testosterone level, do you think we can make a diagnosis at this point? Yeah, so remember that the scan is only one of the three findings. So having a normal ultrasound scan is very good. It's very reassuring. And if she has oligo uh, oligomenorrhea and she has um, signs that have slightly elevated testosterone, then that would lead you to the diagnosis of polycystic ovaries. Lovely. Okay. And so I guess this is a good point to talk about what exactly is polycystic ovarian syndrome? <laughs> Okay, so um, it is one of the most common endocrine disorders that we have in women of reproductive age, as I've said previously. So it's an endocrine imbalance, really, that's associated with increased testosterone and insulin resistance. And then we mentioned about how you would diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome with your Rotterdam criteria. So having two out of the three cardinal features. So the first one being oligo or amenorrhea. Um, the second one being clinical or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism and the third one being uh, features of polycystic ovaries on scan. It's quite common. One in 10 women actually suffer with PCOS right. and it's one of our most common conditions that we see as wow. well within our secondary care. Um, and what I would say about PCOS is that it's giving the patient the right amount of information to know that it has massive life lifestyle consequences and long-term consequences to their health and being able to educate them. So I think making a diagnosis of PCOS is important for the patient, but it's also educating them about the process that's involved with insulin resistance for them, weight gain, and trying to really make the lifestyle changes to reduce their risk of developing the long-term consequences of PCOS. So um, in when we see patients uh, in, in our setting here, we always make sure that we look at their risk of family history of developing diabetes any if they have been pregnant did they have gestational diabetes before yeah. and obviously counseling them that they may develop gestational diabetes in pregnancy or type 2 diabetes later on yeah. and how you would screen for that appropriately so within the primary care if you're making a new diagnosis of polycystic ovaries you need to have a baseline OGTT result okay. because of the risk of developing diabetes and if that if the result shows that there's impaired glucose tolerance or an impaired fasting glucose then you would think about whether you need to repeat that annually. Um, the guidance really is every one to three years, but that depends on the other risk factors that the patient may have. So if, if they are obese and they've got a family history and they've developed gestational diabetes previously. Um, obviously, when they are pregnant, we do do a, the glucose tolerance test in pregnancy as a risk. Having PCOS is a risk factor for developing gestational diabetes. Um, and then the preconception counselling for these women as well. So if, if you're seeing them before they're getting pregnant, is talking to them about weight loss because weight has a significant impact as well in pregnancy for other things so if you're seeing a patient with polycystic ovaries and they say actually I'm going to try to start getting pregnant um, and my BMI is over 30 they need the high dose folic acid because of the increased risk of neural tube defects in women with high BMIs so uh, so it's about it, there's quite a lot of things in terms of the counselling for them a, a good source to go to is the RCOG leaflets for polycystic ovarian syndrome it talks specifically not just not about the treatment but actually about the long term consequences of PCOS and the aspects that affects you on so uh, you know really counseling them about their weight because that's the biggest thing and um one of the things that i tend to say to women is that actually losing five percent of your body mass can make a massive difference to the, the metabolically active visceral tissue so it can normalize testosterone sometimes by just losing five percent and it may return your period so patients trying to conceive 
it is useful for them, but also for patients who are not um, because of the other risk factors, that, that the other long-term consequences that go with PCOS. Yeah, and actually when you mentioned that about the visceral tissue and things, I was going to ask about kind of what's the cause of polycystic ovarian syndrome? Do we know what causes it? No, I think we know all the the, the things that go alongside with it. So in particular, I mean, mostly it's, it's the insulin resistance that we associate with it. Yeah. Um, and all the life t- long-term consequences sometimes are with the insulin resistance, but also the increased weight gain. So the cardiovascular risks that they have, um, and we know with polycystic ovaries, again, now we should be screening for uh, obstructive sleep apnea and taking oh. a history from them for obstetric- obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. We should also be... D- counseling them about their cardiovascular risk it's hard to say that there is a direct link between polycystic ovaries and cardiovascular risk but it's actually the risk factors associated with polycystic ovaries so it's being overweight that increases your risk for cardiovascular disease so um having that that conversation with patients won't do any harm and in fact we should we should be looking at that and bearing in mind that they may need screening in terms of their cholesterol levels as well yeah Yeah. just to clarify when you were talking about the oral glucose tolerance test were you talking about doing that yearly or is that just for in pregnancy no so um you if you have a new diagnosis you should to get a baseline there is some people say you know should we do a fasting glucose should we do a glucose tolerance test should we do a hba1c it's really there's no direct evidence to say that one is specifically better than the other but we go with our the rcog has their own um guideline green top guideline on the long-term consequences of polycystic ovarian syndrome and in particular there they talk about your glucose tolerance test at baseline and if there's impaired glucose tolerance test so that spectrum between the 7 and the 11 yeah. um then you should repeat it annually because they, they are they are more at risk of developing it at that point otherwise it is between one to three years but obviously okay. that's ba- bearing in mind other other risk factors, risk factors that they may okay. have for that so if it's normal um, and they don't have any other risk factors then maybe the longer time between them but if it's normal and they've got some risk factors you want to be, be repeating yeah, it more I mean, regularly I think, again you've got to take that individualized approach to it yeah. haven't you and yeah. i guess the same thing with the hypertension so you know when we see patients with polycystic ovaries obviously because of cardiovascular risk you know how often do we do a bp and and, and that's difficult but i would say every time you see them and at least yearly if you can um it's just trying to get it done as soon as quickly as possible if they've got more risk factors you'd see them more frequently anyway wouldn't you yeah. so yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because the HbA1c might be a bit e- easier in yes. practice, and I think yeah. I've been doing I've been doing that rather. And as, than... like I said, there's no specific evidence that says one is okay. Okay. better Good. than the other. Um, so yeah, as long as we're getting something that in- tells yeah, us about it's just their going off risk. our green top guidelines. That's what it says. Oh, G-G- oh the- <laughs> that's where it says to do the tolerance test. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just, I guess, there um, with what you were saying about the um, long-term consequences and things, I guess that that's basically our main priority when we're diagnosing it. Obviously, for the patient, they might have different priorities because they want to control their symptoms. They might want to conceive. But for us, the diagnosis yes. of PCOS is about those long-term risks. I, th- I think once you've made the diagnosis, it's really having a conversation with the patient about those long-term risk factors. I think previously, we've always focused more on, well, do they need, do they want to get pregnant? And how do we get them pregnant? And how do we get them having periods regularly but i think it's having a conversation of what does it mean to have polycystic ovaries yeah. and not to forget the endometrial cancer risk again yeah because patients with pcos are two to six times more likely to develop endometrial which is significant cancer, yeah. which is significant mm. so you know 
if you were asking me what are the most important things to really get across to the patient is, yeah, you need to have three or four periods a year. Yeah. And you need to really counsel them about the weight. And if they normalize their weight, they normalize their periods. And then they normalize a lot of the testosterone level. And it's the testosterone that develops the acne and the hirsutism. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, it's like you said, talking about pills. If they are on, um, you know, the combined pill or the mini pill, we know that progesterone reduces testosterone. So by okay. trying to regularize their periods a little bit and helping them with the pill it might reduce their testosterone therefore reduce their symptoms okay. but remembering that most of the treatments for PCOS are off license so yeah it's it's just trying to treat their symptoms and telling them that there is no cure no it's mm -hmm. just about trying to make the lifestyle choices to reduce but it really sounds like what you're saying that weight loss is excellent for it absolutely yeah yeah not just for the pcos you know if you've got yeah. women who are trying to conceive you know weight have increased weight increases the risk of miscarriage increased the risk of um, neurotube defects like we talked about the venous thromboembolism risk of being overweight you know the risk of gestational diabetes so it's a lot to cover usually in in your consultation yeah, in our 10 minutes and, yeah and just thinking oh, but again that might be signposting the patient to you rcog leaflet the verity website which is the polycystic ovarian syndrome website okay in the UK. Mm -hmm. um and just maybe saying to them, it's a lot to take in, go and read it and then, you know. And come back. So maybe back. chunking yeah. check, chunking that a little bit. Yeah. So what I would say is don't just focus on regulating their periods, but yeah. educating them about how to make things better for themselves. Definitely. And it's kind of a bit of a slight sideline, but when you're explaining a diagnosis of polycystic um, ovarian syndrome to a patient, how do you normally phrase it? How do you tell them what it is? So uh, it's, again, it's a really hard one because it, it, we don't specifically know, speci you know what it is in particular, but I always tend to say the, the ovaries have more follicles which are immature um, to start with. So you're, you, you're making more little eggs yeah. um, than, than the normal woman but they're just not quite developing properly and because of this insulin resistance you you sometimes have other problems that go with having polycystic ovaries so that leads you to having a slightly higher testosterone as well and that's why you have extra body hair you have um, worse acne than your friend you know yeah. and then telling them that obviously if they're trying to get pregnant then that's why they're not successful in getting pregnant if they're not ovulating properly or as frequently as everybody else so i think i really tailor how what i say depending on how they've presented you know mm -hmm. if you've got um anisha who comes he's 22 and her main problem is i'm not having regular periods and i've got a bit of acne yeah then it's saying well the reason you're not is because your testosterone's higher which is what your blood test has suggested and you've mm -hmm. got this polycystic ovarian syndrome yeah and i think it's saying to them it's the syndrome which is effective. And although her BMI is 28, we may not think that that's high, but actually reducing it a little bit, like I said, 5% or even getting it to 25, would make a, may, might make her periods come back to normal without medication and would reduce all her long-term consequences. So I think sometimes we have to think about how do we make things better for the patient long-term as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. I do like, I like that little, little eggs that aren't developing. Mm -hmm. I might steal that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we've talked about um, if someone's got kind of hirsutism, acne, irregular periods. Are there any other times, because that's Anisha's kind of case, are there any other times that we should be suspecting polycystic ovarian syndrome that we've not covered? No, I think they, they tend to be the reasons. But sometimes women can have regular periods and you can have on an ovulatory cycle. So the patient says, actually, mm -hmm. I have periods every single month. Yeah. And then they have a scan that su suggests it's polycystic ovaries and you've done a blood test and the testosterone is slightly high. Yeah. That doesn't mean just because their periods are normal that they don't have it. So it's just having in mind that they may have anovulatory cycles or they may have regular cycles, which yeah. are longer than normal. So it might initially start with lengthening 
And we do see that sometimes. Okay, so yeah, not to rule it out by yes. just saying that. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so we've told Anisha that she's got polycystic ovarian syndrome and we've discussed everything about the diagnosis in terms of how to manage and what it is. So what other, um, we've talked about the long-term implications yeah. as well. So um, we've talked about metabolic disorders, cardiovascular disease um, and about pregnancy and fertility issues. And also you mentioned uh, already about pregnancy complications as well and endometrial cancer. So the, the other thing that I would mention is that to bear in mind that patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome have slightly increased risk of developing depression. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah. to, to, to consider that as well. And again, um, overeating, undereating and eating disorders. So it's just being mindful of screening for these things as well. Okay, and yeah. I know we talked about obstructive sleep apnea, but if you've got... Patients, so you would just do your questionnaires, I presume, to to rule out, look for those symptoms. You know, are they waking up, still tired, etc., and are they snoring quite loud? It's interesting that there's a link there as well. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, to not forget about the psychological impact of it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, what are we thinking then? If we go back to Anisha and her situation, um, where would you generally start with her management? What would you be suggesting to her initially? Do you think? Okay, so I guess with Anisha, if her, her her main problem was that she was having lengthening of her cycles and irregular periods, I guess the question would be, is she trying to get pregnant or is she not? Yeah. And if she isn't trying to get pregnant and she's sexually active and maybe talking to her if she wants about contraception yeah. for that, but also trying to use hormonal uh, contraception to try and reduce the testosterone that might help regulate her periods okay i would probably initially start actually with taking her with speaking to her about her bmi and trying to get her to reduce her bmi um i i guess ideally and um if you're looking for trying to reduce the chance of endometrial cancer you could think about the marina coil yeah. in patients not wanting to get pregnant if she had acne I, I guess it's trying to get her to reduce the testosterone levels. So really yeah. trying to get her to lose weight. You might find that the, the acne improves because of the hormonal contraception you give her. Yeah. And for her acne is really the same approach you would do with your normal patient who presents with acne. So the same management strategies you have. So you can those. use the same things Absolutely, that we would yeah. do. Okay, um, great. But if they've got a higher testosterone it would and their weight is increased, you might find that they, they're the things that you really need to help sort out as well. Um, so yeah, in terms of um, contraceptive choices, um, would you particularly choose one over the other, like injection? You've talked about the Marina, but um, it, injections or progesterone only or um, combined pills or anything that's better than so anything So there's else? not one that's better than the other. Okay. Um, and it really is individualised approach to it. So looking at the risk factors and what they want and um, whether they want long-term contraception or not, but there isn't one that's better than the other. Not for PCOS, so it is literally yes. how we would deal with any other contraception. But again, remembering it's off licence, so it's not a treatment for PCOS because yeah. we sometimes see that and say oh, we're treating the PCOS so you, um, you don't treat the P you're treating the symptoms yeah definitely um, but really if you've got a woman who's got a BMI of 28, 29 yeah. telling them to try to lose weight is is a treat is a way of reducing the symptoms it's good exactly and then really you can use the other contraception to make sure she's practicing safe sex and Absolutely. things yeah. um, what do we need to know about um, things like the inducing periods and endometrial thickness and things like that patients who are having irregular cycles if they've had three four months with, without a period you what you what you should be thinking is obviously trying to reg let them have three to four bleeds a year yes and we do need to look at endometrial thickness which is important obviously for the risk factors of endometrial hyperplasia and cancer mm -hmm. so if they have a bleed a natural bleed or whether they have a withdrawal bleed um that you've induced it's important to do the 
or pelvic ultrasound scan to look at endometrial thickness. Okay. And generally, if it's more than 10 millimetres or it appears cystic in any way, the endometrial thickness, that would warrant a hysteroscopy and endometrial biopsy. Okay. Is that, that post-bleed or when, when are we doing the ultrasound? So it just if, if they've not had bleeds and you've just done an ultrasound if it's more than 10 yeah you, you would refer if they've had a bleed and it's more than 10 you would still definitely refer yeah. um our green top guidance says that if it's less than seven millimeters it's unlikely to be anything of concern okay. but again we've got an advice and guidance forum here where you can email us and ask us about things like that so we wouldn't mind to be contacted for these things and i don't think anyone would mind a question about that if they weren't sure that's good but the cutoff is is really around 10 millimeters lovely but if you're unsure yeah definitely advice yeah. and guidance is a great way to do that and again if they're having irregular periods and you're not unsure i mean it's bearing in mind that if a woman's 45 with irregular periods and irregular bleeding that also warrants a hysteroscopy and endometrial biopsy or a sudden change again anything that makes you think is this Something sinister that's underlying, again, would warrant further investigation. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that's the scenario where she doesn't want to get pregnant. What if she was wanting to get pregnant? Um, so if they're trying to get pregnant, it's really trying to get them to have regular periods. And so you wouldn't be thinking about starting them on contraception, I guess, to get them regular. So at that point, that, that would be a, a reason to refer to secondary care okay. if they're struggling to get pregnant um, and when we would see them we would normally work out are they ovulating how often are they ovulating um, and do their work up according to our subfertility assessment and then really trying to get them ovulating so the way we would do that is when we see them we would give, induce a withdrawal bleed usually with northesterone okay. if it's uh, suitable for the patient um, and then after that we would measure a day 21 progesterone okay. to see if that's started them ovulating themselves okay. if it hasn't then we would talk about whether we use clomid or letrozole depending for ovulation induction depending on the patient's risk factors um, can you talk us through how you'd use norethestrone just in terms of actually prescribing it to induce a bleed? Yeah, so we normally start off with the lowest dose, so five milligrams uh, mm -hmm. taken three times a day for 10 days. And is the norethestrone, is that something that you'd want us to do in primary care before we refer or would you rather that it got left to yourselves? Uh, it's, it's a difficult question, but what I would say is if we're going to start Clomid, yep. then it's better for us to time that with that. Okay. And, and what we don't want to be doing is, I mean, obviously, if they're not trying to get pregnant and you're just trying to induce withdrawal bleed three yeah. to four times a year, that's fine. And if that's what you've agreed with the patient and she has the norethestrone prior to her coming, again, that's fine. But when we do it for terms of in being able to use ovulation induction, we will time it according to um, starting off the medication. So it depends when, but if we are Absolutely. definitely thinking fertility, just better to leave it to yourselves. As long as they're not having um, a big gap in between. So exactly. if there's if there's going to be more than three to four months before they see us, it's yeah. better for them Very, to have a bleed. Yeah, lovely. Can I ask as well, so I think you said it there, so for inducing a bleed, that it might sort of kickstart ovulation. Absolutely. So, because I was worried. I struggled to answer a patient when she said, how will that affect my fertility? And I, I couldn't tell her. But basically, it, 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 obviously, it's not a contraception, but it won't harm her chances. Yeah. And what I would say is in the patients who are, you might be given neothistrones who just to induce withdrawal bleed throughout the year cycle that we talked about. Yeah. It's bearing in mind that they may start ovulating. So if they're not using contraception, it's educating them that they, they've got a risk of becoming pregnant. And again, with the women who are losing weight, you know, if you only lose 5% of your weight and you start, you might start ovulating. So warning them that if they're not trying to get pregnant, then obviously they should use um That's very true actually because woman might just think I can't get pregnant um so yeah if they're not expecting to get pregnant that would not be yeah. pleasant for them so yes I, I've started well. saying it when I if I'm 
telling people, you know, that initial diagnosis, I do say polycystic ovary syndrome isn't a form of contraception. That's a nice way to put it, <laughs> yeah. I've seen a couple of cases. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and I think we do see some patients who, like I said, there is some misconceptions around it. So you do get the women who say, oh, I've got cysts on my ovaries. Yeah. And sometimes come and think, if, I, if you remove the cysts, my polycystic ovarian syndrome yeah. will go yeah. again it's just the educating them at that, that that it's not that yeah. but also oh i was told i couldn't get pregnant because i've got polycystic exactly. ovaries yeah isn't well not necessarily true because as long if you ever ovulate and they may ovulate by themselves spontaneously so it's just obviously being being aware to the telling the patient that if you weren't trying to get pregnant you still need to think about Yes, forms of contraception definitely yeah. um and i guess it's just um thinking about if we're um, if we're prescribing the northesterone for just inducing a bleed nothing to do with them getting pregnant um there will be some people that maybe aren't eligible for that so yes. it's worth people double checking the second line choice for that absolutely yes right we we've talked about so with going back to anisha and, and her case she's um she's we've done the ogtt yes and it's um normal um so we're going to do that again in three years because she's got no other risk factors okay. is there any other long-term monitoring that she needs so i mean like like we mentioned about blood pressure monitoring, but yeah. also every time they come, measuring their height and weight and um, abdominal circumference as well yeah. and keeping an eye on that. But I think it's important, and, and we've talked about it, is whether you need to see them to, to look at their weight and then talk about long-term consequences again after your initial baseline um, meeting. Yeah. If, if you started them on contraception, you would be seeing them anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and just following them up from that point of view. That's and true. then um, we, have, we have talked about it, but just mentioning that obviously if they were thinking of fertility later on that it may have an impact on their fertility yeah. so Anisha's is really young she's 22 but if you're 33 and you've just been diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome mm. it, it's having a conversation that look you know if you were thinking about having a baby in the next few years you you know when you're getting towards the 35 it's it, it is going to be a bit harder and your, your success rate is a bit lower mm. yeah. so it's just having a conversation with them is that maybe you've not thought about fertility but if you were obviously polycystic ovarian syndrome has an effect on your fertility um, and this was something I was actually this was one of the things I was thinking about to ask you during the conversation about getting pregnant that referral to secondary care is that as soon as we know that they want to get pregnant or do they have do they try for a little bit first is what's the so I guess there? it de depends on where you work and um, I think you know obviously most places say if you've been trying to conceive for a year then that warrants um, referral yeah. but if that patient's only had two periods in the year prior to that then I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset to see that patient at all. Okay. And, and any risk factors that affect lead to subfertility, you would see them sooner anyway. So from a subfertility point of view, if they had tubal disease or they've had polycystic ovaries, we'd be more than happy to see them earlier than the one year. Lovely, because I was thinking that if you give yeah. them a year and then they're delayed, it Absolutely. seems a bit unfair. It, yeah, I think I think everyone should be happy to see them mm -hmm. sooner because if they're not ovulating, their chances are significantly reduced. Exactly. Lovely. Yeah. So the she, whenever Anisha comes back um, to see us and she's talking to us, she asks us about metformin because she's done a little bit of reading and she's heard that this might be helpful for her with her PCOS. Um, can you talk us through what the role of that is now? Okay. Well, um, it's it's a difficult one because there is no specific role of metformin. It's known to have little or no effect, really. Um, I would say that the patients who require metformin are usually the patients who are trying to get pregnant and have had uh, resistance to ovulation induction. Okay. Um, the metformin is, as, as we know, we use it regularly for insulin resistance and diabetes. And obviously, if they have those features, then that is something to consider. So that's like a separate thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, just for alone for the management and, and of 
of this of polycystic ovarian syndrome it's known to have little or no effect i think if you get into that point that would warrant maybe a, a, a referral to secondary care for yeah. a discussion um, perfect but we shouldn't really be starting no. in primary care if you're saying that it doesn't have and, and again impact. it's explain to the patient why they feel it's needed and, and what they want it for and if it's because they're struggling to lose weight then whether we need to think of different ways to guide and signpost the patient and referring them to to other types of you know care facilities like you know the local authorities um health management systems that we might have in place definitely yeah that's a nice way to look at it trying to find out why they want mm, it and yeah. um, because there will be other reasons really mm. you've mentioned a few really good resources for patients um, are there any other resources that that you can mention about this topic so i would say um for the clinicians to look at the rcog long-term consequences of polycystic ovaries which is the green top guideline yep. there is the new international consensus uh which is not new really anymore it was in 2018 but that was set up by lots of other different organizations so your esra rcog british facilities lots of patients um lots of different groups came to develop this international guidance mm. so that we had less variation in our practice so that's a really good document it's quite lengthy so i would recommend reading the recommendation summary for patients I, I normally signpost like I mentioned the RCOG website the leaflet for polycystic ovarian syndrome which is specifically about the long-term consequences as well and the Verity website is, as well but I presume there are lots of other websites that patients can access um, and then maybe whether within um, you you signpost them then to ways of reducing their weight and using yeah. your own resources really for where you are to how you would refer patients with high BMIs and how they can um, see get dietitian referrals and if they are considering fertility it's having that chat to them about well if you want if you need clomid usually it's recommended if your BMI is thirty five or less and if you are eligible for IVF it would be at a BMI of thirty or less so that patients aren't shocked when they turn up and. It's obviously a very hard thing to deliver that news to a patient who may who may say, I've been struggling with my weight since I've been diagnosed. And we completely understand that it's challenging to lose weight when you have levels of insulin resistance. But unfortunately, the cutoffs are there as their ways of assessing who is eligible for those for those treatments. But what I would say is that the cutoffs should be also help you recognise the long-term effects of having a high BMI. Yeah, because as you mentioned, it. It, all the long-term problems and the pregnancy complications Absolutely. of having a high BMI, so they, they need to know about that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about when we might use secondary care to refer into. Are there any other times that you, you've um, seen patients and it's been appropriate to refer into? to secondary care yeah so um i would say if you if you're struggling with the tr with uh, the, the pills that you're using or if you're struggling to regulate their periods or you're finding that the north estrone isn't inducing withdrawal bleeds yep. or if there's anything that, that makes you think oh you know this is this is quite a challenging case and we wouldn't mind at all to see those patients and i think it's just about getting the right you know that individualized care to make sure the patient gets the right care that they require yep. so um we wouldn't we wouldn't mind for those reasons and there are the reasons i talked about so trying to conceive or they've got other other problems that have manifested in terms of irregular bleeding that warrants hysteroscopy and neutral yes. biopsy or increased endometrial thickness yeah like changes what more worrying changes mm -hmm. and um i guess to kind of sum up and finish is there anything that you think that um, we could be doing better in primary care or things that we should change in our management that you've noticed no i think it's really hard it's quite a challenging area and actually if you think that one in ten women have polycystic ovarian syndrome it's quite a lot to get in within that short consultation that you have so i think it's really difficult but what i would say is really focus on the lifestyle 
um, and the weight yeah. management because, yeah. like I said, it's trying to reduce the consequences of polycystic ovarian syndrome. We know that having the risk factors for polycystic ovarian syndrome increases your risks of getting cardiovascular. So it's the cardiovascular risk factors that are increased that are associated with mm. PCOS. Yeah. But on top of that, it's just, just bearing in mind that, you know, endometrial cancer can present in this patient's a group mm. and just being careful that if they warrant referral or if they have any change in their symptoms or your scan shows an increased endometrial thickness or even if it appears cystic yep. that is an indication to refer for biopsy as well and, and the other thing would be the women who are 40 who are struggling with irregular prolonged periods and have completed their family again that yeah. might be a point to have a con uh, conversation about the marina coil yeah. if that would help with their symptoms and protect their endometrium from cancer yeah, lovely. Yeah. I think that's everything that we want to ask you today. Um, thank you so much for taking the You're time and welcome. speaking to us. It's been really interesting. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so that was um, really nice to listen through to you again, um, Sarah, because um, we're recording the outro after you've edited it. Yeah. So it's been a very long time since I've actually listened to this track. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, it was really nice and refreshing to come into it almost like a listener. Yeah, I think COVID really just kind of took over, didn't it? And everything got dropped. So it's nice to go back and refresh. I always find with episodes, when you listen back after recording them, you get something different out of them each time. Um, yeah. And my big point was probably the uh, amazing patient leaflet from the Royal, the Royal College of Obs and Gynae. Shall I say yeah. Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology? And it's fabulous because actually it covers, we, we talk in the episode, oh God, there's so much to cover. Um, the long-term consequences are massive and it's got it all there. So it's got a really lovely explaining detail. And then it's got, what do you actually need to know about this diagnosis? So I've bookmarked that on my favorites bar and I've got a little gyne section. And so then I can use that again. It's, re it's really useful. What a fantastic thing to take away from that. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, I think I, I'll echo that um, what I remember at the time and what I remember from the scene again was just the the real importance of those those longer term impacts yeah. um, of, of PCOS and um, thinking about the diabetic risk, the cardiovascular risk, the um, the endometrial um, cancer yeah. risk. Um, that that's all really important and I know it's difficult in the short consultations that we have mm -hmm. um, but we did pick up on it in the episode that it's probably a case in this diagnosis to have several consultations where you're breaking this down for a patient because um, it has long lasting impacts um, and I think it's really important to, to get on managing those lifestyle factors early to get the weight loss started um, and to make sure we're doing those um, diabetic tests like the the OGTT or, or alternative yeah. that we want to do um, so that these people don't fly under the radar and then come back later with these diagnoses that can have a, a, a wider reach yeah, if that makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely yeah and we did talk after the conversation we did have a bit of a chat about the guidelines, the green top guidelines recommending an OGTT and just kind of how difficult that might be. <laughs> but at least we kind of know what's best practice and we can, you know, adapt our management from there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
the the other thing that I've written down that um I I, I find really nice in the episode um was the little bit that she talked about in terms of cysts and mm. um, because it, it did recall recall to me consultations that I have had in the past where women have told me that they have had cysts on their ovaries and there's been that slight confusion between what they mean and what I would mean yeah. and it was just nice to clarify that perhaps whenever we're talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome to patients that we um, clarify that it isn't one of those large cysts that can cause pain that it's more these these follicles and and the way she described that was really nice yeah the little eggs because a lot of people wouldn't know what follicle is but yeah if you're kind of using it a few different terms they'll pick up on it yeah exactly um and i i quite liked going through the balance in the diagnosis between a patient understanding about the subfertility element but also about the contraception element and how confusing that can be but as long as you kind of understand both sides of it you know if you don't want to get pregnant do use something but if it comes to getting pregnant you may have problems yeah Um, so yeah it's a really interesting balance it is and it's it's a difficult um conversation to have and it's a difficult thing i think to understand ourselves Mm. um because it's taken quite a while for me to get get that yeah. i think <laughs> yeah. um but i think it's described quite well yeah. um in the episode yeah um, but i completely agree yeah it was lovely talking to her she was amazing yeah mm-hmm. lovely so uh what do we normally say at this point <laughs> um so if you want to get in touch with us we've got a couple yeah. of ways to be able to do that you can um, hit us up on twitter our um, handle is at pckb podcast and um, we do love hearing from you on there um, and we tend to share all the new episodes and things that come out on there so give us a follow and we also have an email address um, which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and you can get in touch that way as well yep and we have a survey monkey link in our episode description which people have been filling in and give, giving us really wonderful feedback so thank you so much it's really encouraging and if anyone fancies doing that that's wonderful yep exactly till next time on primary care knowledge boost hey guys just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public they were recorded in greater manchester in 2020 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.